0: Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm one. First Psalm. If you were expecting acts, you were wrong. Psalm one. Well, let us uh, read it together this morning. Consider the reading of God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Let us pray. Father, we, we ask for your help this morning as we consider your word. Help us to make much of the Lord Jesus. May he increase and may we decrease. And that is the cry of our hearts this morning. And we pray that as a result of our time together, we will be more and more in love with him, the one who died and rose again. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, just as every house has a front door, a fixed point of entry, so too the book of Psalms has a front door, and this is the psalm we just read, Psalm 1. But as with every door, it can bring you in once it has been opened, so that you may enjoy the delights found in the rest of the house, or it can keep you outside from those delights. Now, how does Psalm 1 function in that way? Here's how. Charles Spurgeon said that this psalm, Psalm chapter 1, contains the entire book of psalms in summary form. Thomas Watson, another Puritan, took it even further by saying that Psalm 1, quote, Contains the very essence of Christianity. Christianity. Therefore, if you misunderstand Psalm 1, you run the risk of misunderstanding the entire book and much more. So with the Spirit's guidance, I hope to do justice to the psalm itself without losing sight of the entire counsel of God's word. So with that in mind, let's dive in. What is Psalm 1 dealing with? You expect me to answer that, huh? I think Psalm 1 is dealing with the question that uh, all of us have been wrestling with for millennia. And what is the question? The question is this. What is the key to true happiness? The key to true happiness. That's what this psalm is describing. We know this because at the center of the psalm is the word Blessed which is also the first word, and then it means happiness. Therefore, to live in a state of blessedness is to live in a state of happiness, contentment, joy. Psalm 1 is describing the good life, the good life. Don't miss the fact that it is written in the present tense. It doesn't say blessed will be, but blessed is, although there is a future application as well at the end. But the blessed life is meant for the here and now. And if we are honest, the pursuit of happiness has been quite central to the overall endeavor of the human race, wouldn't you say? I think we all want to be happy. I mean, if we were to place a banner outside of the parking lot that said, come and we will tell you how to be happy always and forever... I think we would get a pretty sizable crowd in here. But I also think most of them would be disappointed by the end. Let me explain why. Remember what Jesus said about giving us peace? In John chapter 14, verse 27, the Lord Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Remember that? And that's great. We want peace. But then he immediately qualified that statement and said, not as the world gives, do I give peace to you. Jesus offers us peace. That is true, absolutely wonderful, but not the type of peace that the world is looking for. Likewise, blessedness or the good life, the good life presented to us in Psalm 1 is not what the world is seeking, which goes hand in hand with the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that sermon? Preached by none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus' words were shocking then, and they are shocking now. For every time Jesus mentioned the word blessed, he added a quality that is not normally associated with happiness, such as what? Poverty, mourning, meekness, hunger, thirst, Persecution and Jesus says they are the blessed, they are the happy ones. All of which reveals this one particular tr- truth the biblical message is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive, but why? It is counterintuitive because sin has. Ruined everything, even our intuitions. So the problem is not with the message itself, but with the mind, with the mind that receives the message. What I'm trying to say is this. The message of Christianity is not meant to please the carnal mind. That is an important statement. The message of Christianity was never meant to please the carnal mind. In fact, you will discover that nothing in Psalm 1, what we just read will sound appealing to the carnal mind so as we make our way through this psalm let me ask you how do you define the good life how do you define the blessed life how does true what does true happiness look like to you As you yourself pursue the good life, what's at the center of it all? What is the blessed life? And now the point is to compare our answers to the standard given to us in Psalm 1. So let this be a test for all of us. I have five truths to share with you about the blessed life. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. The blessed life does not believe in the myth. The myth. What is that myth? Neutrality. The myth of neutrality. Consider the first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, notice with me, that the psalm begins by drawing a sharp line between the blessed man and those who are not. Do you realize what that means? It means that the Bible, listen to this, is, this is critically important, the Bible does not really allow for a neutral category. Why? Because the world is not a neutral place. Ever since sin entered the world, there has been a war between truth and lies, good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness. And neither one of these two sides stands neutral. Listen to this, our lives, our lives are always moving in a certain direction. You're never just standing there. You're always moving in a certain direction. You never just stand there without being influenced by something. Psalm 1 speaks of the blessed and or the wicked, but it doesn't say anything about an in-between category. Do you understand what I'm saying? Blessed or wicked. Wickedness, blessedness, or wickedness, but there is no in between category because we're always moving in a certain direction. Your life is moving in a certain direction. You're either moving toward glorifying God or away from Him, but you are never just standing there. This fits naturally with statements such as the one made by Jesus when He said in Matthew 12:30 Whoever is not with me is what? Against me, Jesus left no place whatsoever for what? Neutrality. You cannot say, I'm neutral. When it comes to God, I'm neutral. When it comes to the Christian life, I'm neutral. When it comes to Jesus, I'm neutral. You can never say that. But also consider how the psalm paints the picture for us. The dangers that threaten the blessed life are not just passively lying there in wait as if they were like hidden traps into which you may fall not at all. The picture is rather of a constant invitation to evil. Come join us, is what the world says. Join us, come with us. Now carefully, once again, consider the descriptors. The counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners. So the counsel of the wicked, meaning hear what I have to say hear what I have to say. The way of sinners, meaning join me as we walk toward evil, and the seed of scuffers, meaning come sit with us as we mock God. Here's an important insight that we can gather from this, which we must never forget. Listen to this. The world has its own definition of the blessed life. Because the world is not without its own counselors that are seeking to influence your life. I would argue then that the expressions, the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, and the seat of scoffers are references to the entire system of the world which opposes God and his truth. Anything that invites us away from righteousness and away from holiness, away from the truth of God's word. But let me see if I can continue to prove this a little further. The point being made in verse 1 is this. The world is not passive about moving in a certain direction and inviting us along with it. There are three things that we must keep in mind. First, Consider how the Apostle Paul described the world. He described the world in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, as having a what? Starts with a C. A followed by an O and then a U. R. S. E. Oh, come on. <laughs> having a course that can be followed that can be followed. The world has a course that can be followed. See, the world is like a river whose current is always advancing, is always moving forward. That's the world. The world has a course, a direction. The world is not passive, is not neutral. It is always extending an invitation to join, to follow along away from God and his truth. Second thing, consider this, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Did you hear that? Satanic influence is in the air, in the air. Meaning, if you are not careful, you may find yourself breathing it in. It's in the air. But Satan is said to be at work, at work. Once again, Satan is not neutral. The satanic agenda is always working to oppose God and his truth. And here's the third thing that we must keep in mind. Even though Christians have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we live in this world. Therefore, dangers are all around us. Thus, part of living the blessed life in this world is knowing that this is not a neutral place, neither are our lives. Now, what is the implication of this? Here's the implication of verse one. You must train the powers of your discernment by the renewing of your mind. And this, my brothers and sisters, will never, ever Stop. As long as you live in this world, you will always have to train the powers of your discernment by renewing your mind. In other words, you can't expect to live the blessed life in a manner that pleases the Lord if you want to live on cruise control. Assuming the let go and let God philosophy or the Jesus take the wheel approach. Paul said it best in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, a verse that we all know very well. First, he said this, do not be what to the world? Do not be conformed to the world. Even a cursory reading of those words communicate what? That the world has a desire for you. The world has a desire for you to conform you, to mold you into its likeness again The world is not a neutral place. It does have an agenda. The world has an agenda because we have a, there is a a goddess, a Satan, the spirit that is now at work. Moreover, you are being conformed to something. You are being conformed. And the blessed life consists, at least in part, in being aware of this, that the world does have a word of counsel for you to hear, that it has a way for you to walk on, Remember, you are always at war. J.I. J. Packer said this, and this will sting a little bit to us. He said, quote, the Puritans exemplified maturity. We don't. Spiritual warfare. Here's why they exemplified spiritual maturity. Spiritual warfare made the Puritans what they were. They accepted conflict as their calling, seeing themselves as their Lord's soldier pilgrims. Did you get that? They, they were effective in the ministry and the service of the Lord because they knew themselves to be in a spiritual warfare. This would explain why, for example, one Puritan, William Gurnall, for instance, he wrote over 1,000 pages on the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, 1,000 pages. He spent 15 years, 15 years studying one thing only, the armor of God and spiritual warfare. So let me ask you this. How aware are you? How aware are you of the fact that the world is seeking to conform you into its own image? Now, the second thing Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, he says this, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Did you catch that? Isn't it interesting that even though we are new creatures in Christ positionally, we still need to be renewed practically every day. You still need to renew your mind. Why? Because once again, I've said this many times already, the world is not a neutral place. Rather, we're always being exposed to ideas, philosophies, and concepts that oppose the living and true God. Now, in order to discern what the will of the Lord is, you need what? You need a standard, which also comes from God, which is the second point in our notes. The blessed life possesses a new treasure, The blessed life possesses a new treasure. And what is that treasure? Which is a little bit counterintuitive, even for us. The law. The law. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Who would have thought that the law had any part in the blessed life? I understand that for some of us sitting in this room, this may sound a little anti grace, it may sound a little legalistic. Shouldn't we delight in the grace of God rather than the law of God? How come the blessed life means delighting in the law? Doesn't the Bible say that the law condemns us? Yes, it does. The law, says Paul, reveals the sin that is in us. The law is like rain. You know what the rain does? Once it comes in contact with the ground, what comes up? The worms. And that's the law of God. Once it touches the soul, the law exposes the true darkness within it comes up. So when you hear words such as, you shall not commit adultery, you are struck by the power of those words. They go down to your very thoughts. And when this is understood, the adultery of the heart is exposed. However, this does not mean that we throw away the law of God, or that the law is bad, may it never be. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Paul said, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and righteous and good. The question then becomes this, how can something that condemns us become a source of delight? Now, let me first explain how this happens, and then we'll discuss what this looks like. So here's the implication here's the implication. So the, the implication, what I mean by implication is a conclusion that is not explicitly mentioned in the text, but can be drawn from it. Here's the implication. The beginning of the blessed life is a new heart. The beginning of the blessed life is a new heart. Why is that the implication? Because delighting in the law of God, delighting in his word, does not come naturally to us. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a sad reality of sin. We don't naturally delight in God's word. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Categorical statement. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Even more categorical is the statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Consider this For the mind that is set on the flesh is what to God? Hostile. Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. It is absolutely imperative, then, that as we think of what it means to delight ourselves in the law of God, we don't miss this underlying truth. We don't naturally delight in God's law, but if we do, it is only because of grace which grants us a new heart, the new birth. Thus, we delight in God's law not as an instrument of salvation, but of guidance into greater conformity to God's holy character. Thomas Watson, once again, a Puritan, said this, quote, though the moral law be not a Christ to justify us, it is a rule to instruct us, end quote. The law of God is not meant to save us. It cannot save us. It is only the grace of God in Christ, crucified and risen, that can save us from our sins by providing the blood as an atonement for us. There is no other way, but we don't throw away the law. Jesus came not to annul the law, but to establish the law. Therefore, we must seek to grow in our delight of the law of God. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to delight in it? I will cover that in just a few minutes. For now, consider next. The blessed life assumes a posture. A posture. What posture? Submission. Submission. This is a critical point for us living in this day and age the law of god the law of god it is not the law of men it is not the law of the culture it is not the commonly accepted norms neither my inner feelings my intuitions my dispositions but the law of god sounds very obvious my friends but it's not that obvious anymore What stands above the blessed life is the law of God, not my own, not the law of the culture, but the law of God. In other words, the blessed life is a life that understands the truth and the calling of submission. To put it in biblical terms, as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Now, here's the implication. Here's the, the implication. This is counterintuitive once again. Blessedness, blessedness, the blessed life has to do with living under authority. Isn't that counterintuitive? Countercultural? I've mentioned that the world has its own definition of the blessed life. How could we sum up the worldly definition of the good life, the blessed life? Here it is, two words. They're not mine. Expressive individualism. That's the world's definition of the good life. Expressive individualism. How many of you have heard that term before? Okay, five of you. Good deal. Now that term, expressive individualism, was coined... By an American scholar named Robert Bella. And it means exactly what it says. It means exactly what it says. Happiness, joy, fulfillment in life are found in giving full expression to your inner desires. That is the happy life. Your inner desires, your inner feelings, they rule. They rule everything. In the current environment in which we live, in this world, my brothers and sisters, happiness and joy are to be found in your ability to live in accordance with whatever instincts you might have. Speaking, for example, of transgenderism, Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, He explained it this way. Consider this insight. Very, very good insight. And I quote, The sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, would have been nonsense to our grandparents' generation. Had it been uttered by a patient to a doctor in the mid-20th century, the doctor would almost certainly have responded that the patient had a psychiatric problem and that his mind needed to be treated so as to bring its feelings into line with his physical body. Today, the doctor, and thankfully not all doctors, but today the doctor is more likely to respond that the problem is such that the patient's body needs to be brought into alignment with those inner feelings, end quote. Such indeed is the case. We are reaching a level of corruption in which some are even willing to challenge biological fact just so they can live the happy, blessed, good life according to the impulses, the feelings that they have within. But this is happening in many, many different levels. And even just uh, 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 journeying through YouTube and Facebook can expose you to many ideas out there of people that are trying to emancipate themselves from the authority of God. Emancipation from God has always been the cry of the sinner from the beginning. We don't want God over us telling us how to think and how to live. But this is indeed what Psalm 1 warned us About For millennia, sinners have been scoffing at the truth of God's word and trying to create their own reality to please their own inner identity. Christians, what is our call? We must seek greater conformity to God's law word, not less. And this is the progress of sanctification in us. As Psalm 1 makes clear, the key to the blessed life is within the sphere of obedience to God's word, not in the quest for autonomy. Now, how do we do that? Consider next. Consider next. The blessed life is sustained by a practice. The blessed life is sustained by a practice. What is that practice? You know it. Meditation. Meditation. What is meditation? Meditation. Meditation is the outcome of delight. Meditation is the outcome of delight. Meditation is what delighting in the word looks like. In other words, what I'm saying is this. You meditate upon the things in which you delight. By the way, let me just say this. We all meditate. Every single person in this room, we all meditate. The question is, what's the object of your Meditation. But what is it then? What is meditation? Simply speaking, meditation is extended thought upon an object of delight. Extended thought upon an object of delight. You could do a, like a survey of your own thinking. And you could discover what are the things that you delight in the most. Because the things that you delight in the most are the things that you think about the most. So what does it mean to meditate upon God's word? Well, here's a, an illustration that was brought to my attention by an old theologian named Joseph Carroll. And he used the example of Elijah. Elijah prayed for rain, and as he did so, he looked at his servant, servant Ahab and said to him, go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. He looked once and said, there is nothing. And Elijah said, go again seven times. Go again, but this time seven times. And at the seventh time, Ahab said, behold, a little cloud is rising from the sea. And I loved that illustration because meditation is not just to look upon the word quickly. Meditation is to look at the word, but seven times as it were. To meditate is to consider a particular truth until you begin to see that little cloud rising from it. A practical example of meditation is precisely what you are hearing right now a sermon. A sermon is meditation applied. You are here, every time you hear a sermon, you are hearing the product of a man looking at a text seven times, chewing on it until it yields its nutrients. Now, this doesn't mean that you are expected as a Christian to meditate in order to preach or to teach, but we're all called to different callings in life. So no, that's not the point. But you are called to give, give careful attention, consideration to God's word as a constant practice. So here is an important implication for you and I, important implication. Here it is. Don't underestimate, don't underestimate the critical importance of the basics of the Christian life. Don't underestimate the critical importance of the basics of the Christian life. It is quite astonishing to me that in what is considered to be such an essential passage of Scripture, a summary of the Christian life and the very description of what it means to be blessed, the practice of meditation found such a prominent place. Why? Well, because meditation is that important. But we also need to realize and admit something. Meditation is difficult. It is difficult because we are in constant spiritual warfare. And meditating on truth while living in a world that is infatuated with personal feelings and instant gratification will never come easy. So we don't need to kid ourselves meditating upon God's word will be a battle until the day we die a battle But why do you think meditation is so hard so hard Well if you haven't heard me already please hear me again now meditation is difficult because the world is offering its own counsels to you its own way we're utterly distracted and so it takes much intentionality for meditation to take place. Now, I want to in, in an effort to be practical, I want to recommend to you a wonderful resource that will provide great definitions, encouragements, and practical advice when it comes to meditating things upon which I cannot improve. I would strongly recommend that you pick up a copy of the book named titled God's Battle Plan for the Mind by David Saxton. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I have recommended it before from this pulpit, and I want to recommend it again. It will provide, prove greatly beneficial to you in this important area of meditation, God's Battle Plan for the Mind by David Saxon. I believe we have a few copies uh, in our resource center here. Once again, you cannot, you should not underestimate the importance of meditation. Should you do so, you will forfeit what meditation on the word can yield. And what is that? Our next point. The blessed life has a strong quality. Has a strong quality. And what is that quality? What we all need. Stability. Stability. He is like a tree. All oh, the strength of a well-rooted tree. The Athenians, to whom Paul ministered, had a problem. In Acts 17, we find that problem. What was the problem with the Athenians? They were always craving one thing. Remember what that was? They spent their time telling or hearing something new. Craving the new might just be the greatest enemy to stability in life. Where is our stability found? Not in the new, but in the ancient. It is only as you make God's word the object of your constant meditation that your life will be like a tree, deeply rooted and firmly grounded. The seemingly unsensational process of meditation, someone said, Is what Christians must relearn in our modern culture if they are to prove fruitful and become content. If you are dealing with issues of lack of contentment or whatever else, one of my first questions for you would be precisely that How is your life of meditation? How is your life of meditation? What is the implication of this? Well, God's word is the rock upon which the blessed life is built. God's word is the rock upon which the blessed life is built. I want you to turn in the same book, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 And I want us to consider one verse. Psalm 119 has a lot of verses. It's the longest chapter. But I want us to consider one verse, 165. Psalm 119, verse 165. In fact, let me say this. If there is one verse, I would strongly commend to you for both memorization and meditation is precisely this one. For it explains what the psalmist meant when he spoke of the blessed life being like a strong tree. Here's what it means. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love what? Your law. What do they have? Great peace. Have those who love your law. And then it says this, nothing can make them Stumble. You know what that is? Stability. Strength, spiritual strength, stability. Why are there so many people stumbling away from the faith in our day? Because they never found stability in the Word of God. Now, here's the next point the blessed life comes with a promise. The blessed life comes with a promise, fruitfulness, fruitfulness. It says that he will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I would like to draw your attention to the fact that the blessed life is not the lack of conflict neither the absence of pain and suffering. It doesn't say that. Rather, the blessed life is about fruitfulness as the result of stability, which is found upon the solid foundation of God's unchanging word, a stability that endures even as circumstances change. But consider also what a fruit is fruit comes out of something, it doesn't produce something. A fruit is not the cause, but the result of something. Here's the point. As you engage your mind and your affections with the unchanging Word of God, since this Word is living and active, it does something in us. It produces something. Why? Because the Word is also the sword of the Spirit. So here's the implication of this. The blessed life, in an ultimate sense, is the fruit of the Spirit. The blessed life comes from the Spirit of God. Fruitfulness does not need to be artificially manufactured. It is produced. It is brought about within us. And the agent is the Spirit of God. Now, a tree, get this point, this is important. A tree that yields its fruit in its season is what? it's a healthy tree. It's a healthy tree. So too is the Christian. Let me see if I can explain. We all go through different seasons in life, don't we? So I want to ask you some questions for you to ponder upon later on. These are important questions for you to examine your own life. In light of the fruit of the Spirit that we know from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, such as love, joy, peace, etc. Do you see these fruit yielded in their respective seasons? What do I mean by that? These are practical questions that you can take home and consider further for a long time. For instance, here's a practical one. In seasons of great temptation to sin, do you yield the fruit of self-control? In seasons of great temptation to sin, do you yield the fruit of self-control? In seasons of great turmoil, do you yield the fruit of peace? In seasons of great hostility against God's truth, do you yield the fruit of faithfulness? In seasons when sorrows like sea billows roll, do you yield the fruit of joy? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to think on these questions as you go home this afternoon. So here's the final warning. Here's the final warning that we hear in Psalm One, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Wicked people, those who live as if there is no law, are described in this verse as chaff driven away by the wind. They won't stand when judgment finally comes. The point is this, those who live their lives without acknowledging God as God are not taking into account the fact that all things, all things, all thoughts, all actions, all deeds will be brought to justice. Every thought, every word, every deed will be brought to justice. We won't get away with anything. No one will get away with anything. Judgment is coming. And those who ignore The authority of God and the call to repentance and to believe in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are doing one thing, what the Apostle Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Those who persist in living, disregarding God and his word, which includes the rejection of God's command to repent and to believe in his Son, are storing up wrath. They're accumulating for themselves wrath, a wrath that is to come. So the call that we find embedded in this psalm is a call to repent. And to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which takes us to the grace point. The grace point. I don't want us to miss the point of the psalm. The point of this psalm is not to boost your self-confidence, but actually to destroy your self-confidence in order that you may place your confidence somewhere else. If you think about it, my brothers and sisters, this psalm, Psalm 1, is the summary, the perfect summary of the life lived by one man and one man only, and it's not you, it's not me. If you could take Psalm 1 and reduce it to its essence, it would be this, the blessed man is the one who always does what is pleasing to God. And of all the people who have ever lived, who have ever walked the earth, there's only one who has the right to say those words truthfully and with a clear and perfect conscience. In John chapter 8, verse 29, the Lord Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. There's no one else in this room who can say those words. This is why Jesus stands alone. This is why Jesus is unique. And this is why Psalm 1 is ultimately describing Jesus, our Lord. So, what's the point? What is the point? The blessed life, here it is. The blessed life can only be had by faith in the blessed man, Jesus. The blessed life can only be had. By faith in the blessed man, the ultimate, the supreme blessed man, Jesus Christ. Interestingly, if we want to get to the point of it all, we must look at places like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with how many spiritual blessings? Every. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or John chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do and you have nothing. The point of Psalm 1 is that we look to Christ in faith, knowing that, as Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says, By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the point is this. There is no blessed life apart from the blessed one, the Lord Jesus, in whom all blessings are found. We are blessed because of our union with Jesus by faith and because His Spirit is making us into the likeness of Christ. So, what is the practical takeaway? Here's a practical takeaway for us who we are, who we are, is manifested by our way, our way. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. What is that? Well, the psalm is all about fruit. What you produce, what comes out. As I said, fruit is not the cause, but always the product. As your heart is, so is your life. What does that mean? It means that we ultimately live according to who we are. And the progress of sanctification in us is the fruit of our legal justification before God. We don't sanctify ourselves in order to be justified. Rather, because we have been justified, we are being sanctified. So while Psalm 1 is a perfect description of the blessed man, the Lord Jesus, it is only a progressive description of who we are. We are being transformed day by day. So the takeaway is this. Do pay attention to the fruit in your life. Because the fruit reflects the true condition of the heart. Do pay attention to the fruit in your life because the fruit reflects the true condition of the heart or in the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 verse 20 you will recognize them. By what? By their fruits. So I finish by asking you this. Are you walking by faith in the Son of God? And are you walking by the Spirit? Or are you dominated by the flesh? One thing I know for certain, you cannot do both. You will either walk by the Spirit or by the flesh, but you cannot do both. With this in mind, let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your Word, which is living and active, and it's able to penetrate deep into our hearts. I pray that you will take the words that we have heard, and by your Spirit, do what only you can do. I pray that you will continue, Father, to transform your people, your children, into the likeness of Jesus. And if there has been conviction of sin in this place, I pray that those who have been convicted will look to Christ, our only refuge and strength. He is always a present help in time of need. And for those who have remained maybe indifferent, I pray that you will bring deep and true conviction into their hearts, that they will know themselves to be actually broken before you, and that they will seek the healing that only Christ Jesus and him crucified can provide. And So we thank you for him, for our Lord, the blessed one, the righteous one who lived the life we could not live, who always did what was pleasing to you, but the one who also went to the cross and suffered a sinner's death under your wrath so that we might be free. And we thank you for the glorious resurrection, for the fact that the tomb is now empty and the Lord Jesus has been exalted at your right hand. And so we pray that our ultimate motivation for living the blessed life will be the exaltation of Jesus in us. And may the Spirit continue his good work in us, the one that he began. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.